What is it you think of first? Maybe it's COVID and coronavirus. Maybe it's from the lighthearted type things. My wife and I were laughing this morning about a meme that we saw that said, I'll be home for Christmas because I've been here all year anyway. (laughs) Maybe it's from those lighthearted things to the more serious loss of wages, loss of work, loss of health, loss of family members. Maybe what comes to mind is politics. There's been a little bit of that going on, still going on. Maybe it's unrest in society, from protests and demonstrations to riots, to even the outright destruction that happened even on Christmas Day. How would you sum up this past year? Would you sum it up as chaos? Maybe you would summarize it this way, 2020, out of control. Well, one thing is for certain. Things are out of our control. This is not unique to 2020, but something as small as a virus has surely made it clear this year that we don't have quite as much control over our circumstances and situations as we thought. As we began hearing about it a year ago, to see that something so small has absolutely changed the whole world, hasn't it? And despite our best efforts, we can't control it. And if by God's grace, it seems to come under control, let us not forget the reality that we are still not in control. What we need to conclude as this year comes to an end and we prepare to begin a new year, what we need more than anything is a glimpse of the one who is in control. It's not you and it's not I, but it is the one we've been singing of this morning. And so in order to do that, my goal this morning is to give us something of a post-Advent sermon A sermon looking to the second advent, the second coming of Christ. That that would be what would hearten us this morning as we've been singing so fervently about that reality. That Isaac Watts wrote about it, joy to the world, the Lord has come. He has come and we will know the fullness of his rule and his reign. Right When earth receives her king, when he returns again. And on that day, no more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. For he will come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Thanks be to God, that day is on the horizon. And as we wait, it is good, as we just sang a moment ago, that we remind ourselves of these realities. Of who is in control, and what it will be when he returns. And what we are to be doing and placing our hope in as we await his second advent. So in a moment, moment we'll turn our attention more fully to Revelation chapter 5. But before we do, as we think about just the study of Revelation in general, I've already made a joke about that. 
and it is revelation, not revelations, by the way, but um, that's my second joke, and you didn't get it, and that's okay. Pastor Ken's laughing at home. Uh, I have faith in you, brother. Uh, So here we see, but I want to turn our attention to one thing first before we dive in. Theologian Vern Poitras sets the stage of our study of Revelation this morning this way. Listen to what he says. Revelation renews us not so much by telling us about particular future events, that word particular is key, particular future events, as by showing us God. Back up. Revelation renews us not so much by telling us about particular future events as by showing us God. Let me say it this way. My goal this morning is not so much to strain us on trying to figure out the particular details, so much so that we miss what is standing right in front of us. And it's the beauty of God on his throne. Let me pick back up with the quote. He says, it renews us by showing us God who will bring all events to pass in his own time and his own way, end quote. So you don't miss what he's saying. The focus is on God who is on the throne. The focus is on the one who is in control. So with this in mind, let's read first Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 together. This is God's word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the living creatures like a lion. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. And the third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're desperate for it. 
This morning we plead for your help and we confess that we need it. Just because we can read it and just because we can hear it doesn't mean that we'll truly hear it in faith. This morning, Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe that your word would fall on good soil, that it would take root, and that it indeed would bear fruit. In all of our lives, from the smallest, the youngest, to the oldest, to those who may be joining us via live stream, oh God, let your glory go forward. Let your word accomplish your purposes. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me set the stage for you briefly, if I can. Revelation chapter 1, we're introduced to what's happening here. The, John has given us the account that he is being given by the Lord. In a moment, we'll refer back to that. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven letters to the seven churches. If you go read those, you can read them quickly this afternoon. You'll see some themes that continue uh, to come forward in those seven letters. One of the primary themes is perseverance, that we would persevere, we would remain in the faith. We would not be seduced by idols. We would not be given of our hearts to idols and to those that are luring us, but that we would stay true to our Lord and that we remain in the faith. And then here in chapter 4, we really introduced the throne room. And chapter 4 and chapter 5 go together. And so I don't have a PowerPoint outline. I'm sorry for those of you who aren't like me, uh, who like a PowerPoint outline, but I don't have it. But let me just give you a quick outline here verbally. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we're given the throne room. And then 4, 7 through 11, we're given throne room worship. And there we're talking about at the end, as we just read, that this is the God who has created all things and sustains all things. It's the God of creation. And then chapter 5, if I could outline it this way for you, we're getting the God who is the same God of creation as also the God of recreation, of redemption, if you will. And so that's what we're introduced to there in chapter 5. And so we'll, we'll go there in just a moment. But first, let's catch a glimpse of the God who is on the throne there in chapter 4. And we don't have time to dive in here in detail, unless you've got time, you let me know. Uh, but I think we will work through this quickly and just hit a couple of the high points. First, we see in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 4, we get a picture of God's justice and his mercy. And we see his beauty, his transcendence. What's amazing is that uh, there in chapter 3, he says, And he sat there who had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around him was a throne, uh, and around the throne was that of a rainbow, or a rainbow that was of a, like an emerald. And so what we see there, the picture of the rainbow, it reminds us of God's mercy. It reminds us of his mercy there that we saw with the sign of the covenant that he gave to Moses, I mean to Noah. And this is a symbol of God's mercy, yet at the same time we see his mercy and we're also introduced to his justice, right? Think about what is said next. It says in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. There we are reminded of Moses, reminded of him at the mountain. Remember when uh, the people said to Moses, no, it's okay, you go up there, we'll stay back here, uh, as they were afraid of God's holiness. 
in his glory and his justice. And so it says from there came the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder. We think there of Joel and Amos and other minor prophets who spoke of God's great justice and the peals of thunder that could not be ignored. You ever been there? You ever been in a store when there was a great thunderstorm outside? You know, and you've seen people and, and there's some rumblings of thunder and you can tell some people are just anxious about storms in general. But then there's that one loud clap of thunder that makes everyone cower. You been there? You mean it? It's like it doesn't matter how tough you act. Sometimes it just pushes you down, right? And so here we're getting this picture of the grandeur and the glory of God is far greater than that of even the loudest peals of thunder that we've ever heard. And so we see there God is a God of mercy. We see that God is a God of justice. And he will bring this justice and this judgment and we'll also see this mercy if we were to continue studying through this book together. And so we catch that and then look at verse six. And before him in a throne was a sea of glass like crystal. Now what's amazing here is that often we see, we understand that God's people, uh, in Jewish understanding, they would have seen the sea as something of chaos, right? Of bringing about judgment. We can see that from Noah as God brought judgment through water. We see it there at the Red Sea as God parted the Red Sea and gave salvation to his people through judgment. And then the sea returned on top of Pharaoh's army and brought judgment and justice upon them. And so here we even see it there in Mark chapter 4 as Jesus calms the sea, right? There was a great storm and then he stood and spoke. And he speaks and listening to his voice, right? And he spoke and there was a great calm there on the sea as well. And so often sea is a symbol of chaos, is a symbol of maybe what we would describe 2020 as, right? Out of control. But God is a God of what? God is a God of order. And so here the sea is like glass. Just as we saw there with Jesus in Mark chapter 4, there was a great calm that God has subdued all things under his authority. That's the picture that is going on here. So the sea is calm as of glass like crystal. And so here we're getting a picture of God's glory, his grandeur, of his sovereignty, that he is in control of all things. And so the rightful response of this is that there would be worship of the Lord. And it says around the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. And then it explains the creatures. Look at that. And then it says, verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. Now, this is something of a remarkable description of God's glory and the praise and worship that he deserves. First, full of eyes. What it means is they never cease to see. They never cease to cease. They're continually seeing. And in their continual seeing, they're constantly seeing new dimensions of God's glory. I mean, you can just think about Ephesians 2, 7. That for all eternity, we'll praise his glorious grace as his gracious washes over us like waves of the sea. It never ceases, and we never cease to be amazed by it. And so here we're seeing that they continually witness his glory and are continually seeing new dimensions of his glory. And the result of this continual seeing of his glory is this continual praise, this unceasing praise to this glorious God. They never cease 
to testify to what they see. And so what do they continually see and what do they continually say? Look there in verse 8. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's eternal. There is none before him. There will be none after him. He's preeminent and supreme. There is none above him. He is the holy, holy, holy God. Holy in that he is separate. There is none like him. And this is said, if we are reminded of Isaiah 6, where it's really said in the Hebrew there in a superlative sense, right? Holy, holy, or holiest. There is none that is greater than he. And so here is the throne room. And we're introduced to the praise and what's happening here in the throne room. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So here in the throne room, we're introduced to the God of creation. We're introduced to the preeminent God. There is none greater than him. There, will be, there was none before him and there will be none after him. But it gets better. It gets better still. Now let's turn our attention to chapter 5. Chapter 5, John testifying, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll and written on it and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And when I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So here, John is testifying that that the Lord has a scroll in his hand, and and this scroll, what is it? Well, theologians will tell us that the scroll is God's plan of redemption. It's the, the unfolding of his plans for his creation and for the redemption of his creation. One scholar said it this way, it details the judgments that will inaugurate the eschaton, that means the end of all things, to provide an end to history and the beginning to the eternal reign of Christ as well as the joy of the people of God. See what he's saying there? He says the end of history, the beginning of the eternal reign of Christ as well as the joy of the people of God. Another scholar says the scroll contains all of God's purposes for judgment, for blessing. The scroll can only be affected by someone opening the scroll. And so here we're we're seeing that the the scroll is in hand and the angel in verse 2 cries out, proclaiming who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Then look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see the the tension and the drama of the moment. John recognizes what's on the line here. This is not hyperbole. He He says that there was no one who is worthy to bring about the plans and the purposes of God. There was no one who was able to set this into motion. There is no one who, we're, we're, we're doomed, we're stuck. And what does he say? He says, I began to weep loudly because there was no one who was worthy. 
See, John understands what's on the line. John understands that all hope is lost if the plans and purposes of God cannot go forward. If there is not one who is worthy to open the scroll and bring it about. And he weeps loudly. But look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is exactly what we read about, right? Just a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 49, that a lion would come from the tribe of Judah. And the elder is saying to, to John, weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he, he's the one, the root of David. And here we're seeing the culmination of all of God's plans and purposes come into this moment, all the way back to Genesis 3, where God promised that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And, and, and that Genesis has been consumed moving forward of, of who is this one who will come and who will bring about God's plans and purposes. And there in Genesis 49, as Jacob is giving the blessings to his sons, he says, from Judah will come one, will come the lion. The scepter will never part from between his feet. There will be a ruler with an eternal reign we read about that in Isaiah chapter 9 on Friday night on Christmas Eve. And so here he's telling them the lion, the king, the one we have been waiting on. And then, and then look at what he says next, the root of David. This is amazing. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at when in the temple in Mark's gospel and, and they're questioning him and he's like, I got, I got a question for you. How can David say my Lord to his son? How can he say that? How can great David have a son greater than he. So they would always understand that the older would be superior to the younger, that, that the younger would be subject to the older, that the son would be subject to the father. But here we're told that David's descendant is a branch of David, yeah, but he's also the root of David. He's the very source of David himself. It's an amazing thing that Christ is both the root and the branch of David. He's great David's greater son. He's the one that we've been longing for. He's the one that we've been looking to. He is God in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's victorious. He has brought about the victory so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But then, notice what happens next. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here we see the moment as the scene pans and John looks and he says, where is 
the line of the tribe of Judah? Where is the root of David? Where is the one who has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals? And as he looks, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. John here is mixing his metaphors, isn't he? See, the lion is the lamb. How is it that victory will come? How is it that he has conquered? He's conquered by laying down his life. He's conquered by being the lamb who was slain. You see, friends, the reality is is that you and I have rebelled against the holy God. That's the whole reason why there's a problem to start with. If we go back to Genesis, prior to God promising to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, we, we, we see what happened just before that with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they rebelled against God, and they said, we'll be our own gods. We don't need you. We know better than you. We can call the shots. We've got this under control. And they found out quickly that they weren't. You and I have taken part in that. That's passed on to us, and we have actively participated in that rebellion ourselves, trying to establish ourselves as our own kings, as our own rulers of our own lives. Uh, Friend, let me just ask you, where has that gotten you? What has it secured for you? Whatever it is that you hold up to that and say, you know what, you don't know my life, it's pretty good. Maybe so. The Bible is clear. There is one ultimate trump card that gets the last say, and it's death. And can I ask you that whatever it is that you have accomplished in your life, how much good is it going to do you when you die? How much hope is it going to provide for you then? Your legacy will not last. You're like, well, that's pretty harsh and heavy, man. I thought church was about being positive and good news. Well, hang with me, friend, but first you've got to understand the bad news, and that's the problem with a lot of churches today is they don't want to tell you the bad news, and it really diminishes the good news. And the bad news is, is that whatever you're holding on to It's like sand in your hands, and the tighter you squeeze, the more it goes between your fingers. And when you get to the end of your life, you'll open your hands and you'll be empty-handed. It'll all have come to naught and nothing. Whatever you can establish and whatever you can build, you just read the pages of history, you read it in this scripture before us, and you'll see that mighty men and women, they come and they fall And trying to rule our own lives will only bring about sin, shame, sorrow, death, and judgment in the end. See, the lamb will either bring you joy or you will know him in judgment. You will either know him and know joy as you bow before him and you say, yes, worthy is the lamb. Or you will face him and you only know him in judgment. And here what we see is that this lamb was slain 
for rebels like you and I who've sought to establish our own kingdoms, who've sought to, to, to build greatness for ourselves, to make a name. Maybe it's through moral and good living. Maybe it's through throwing all of that off and saying, I'll just set my own way and chart my own course. I don't need any of this. But in the end, the reality is unavoidable. There is a God who created you and I, this God that we just read about on the throne in chapter four. He's the uncaused caused is what some philosophers called him. He's the one who preceded everything else and he created all things and he owns all things and he rightfully lays claim on your life and on my life and when we die, we will stand before this God and we will give an account and we will either know joy because we have understood that the lamb who was slain was slain for us or we will know judgment because we've sought to stand and answer for ourselves. And friend, we cannot stand before a holy God. I'll never forget back in 2014, one politician, I won't name him, said, there's in heaven and there's a God. I won't stop to be interviewed. I'll just walk straight in because there's no question. I'm worthy of it, is what he was saying. Friend, that's some of the saddest words I've ever heard. doesn't matter how much power you can gain for yourself here. No one will walk right past this God that we read about here in chapter 4. No one will blow him off. No one will ignore him. No one will give direction and order to him. But all will heed what he says. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, some with joy in their hearts and some with curse in their breath, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And so here we see that John says, there is one who is worthy and it's the lamb who is slain. It's the lamb who has come and laid down his life for his enemies. Look back at chapter one at the very beginning of this testimony. Look at verse 17. And I'll just tell you what it will be like when you stand before him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Well, friends, we will not give orders to this God. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. See, friend, that can be you this morning. There's still time for you to hear from the holy God. Fear not. I am the first and I am the last. This is Christ testifying. I'm the first and last. There's none before me. There will be none after me. I am the living one. And here it is. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and AIDS. Here's the one who died, yet who conquered sin and death. Augustine said that he endured death like a lamb. lamb. He devoured it like a lion. Christ entered into death for his enemies, but was victorious over sin and death through his sinless life and his atonement made for sins. He paid that price 
for any who would look to him in faith, and on the third day was raised victorious over sin and death, and is alive forevermore. And he offers that victory to any who would look to him in faith and repentance. So here is the one who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it, and who is worthy to bring about God's plans and purposes. Look at what we see next. He says, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns, the horns would point to its power. Seven eyes, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gospel. As they say, worthy are you to, to take the scroll, to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you've ransomed. There we have the gospel of redemption that you have ransomed the people who would look to him in faith and who would say, you know what? It is through our rebellion that we've brought this about but God has sent his son to redeem for himself a people and those who have found Christ to be the beautiful savior, the only hope and have placed their faith in him, they have been ransomed and they have been made a people for for God, and they will be from every tribe, from every language, from all people, and from all nations. And then notice this, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 11, he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that were in them that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Brothers and sisters this is a beautiful scene. There's so much that we could say here. And talk about. Can I just ask you one question right now? Christian, what has been wooing your heart lately? What has been drawing you to place your hope in this? What is it? Maybe it's been quick, temporary, right? The perfect family gathering, the perfect gift, the the perfect whatever it was over the last few days and it's over and you feel yourself in kind of a slight depression because it's over? Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's 
perfect score on some grades that are coming up to get your report cards back, students, college students, others? What is it that's wooing your heart to, to put your hope here, put your trust here? Maybe it's the right outcome of elections, whatever it is. Good things, important things, but there's this temptation to make those things ultimate things and to forget about the one who is in control of all things and that your hope has been wooed away from him and placed on other things. And can we just for a moment ask the Lord in his grace to to give us sobriety to see that the things that we're tempted to put our hope in pale in comparison to the lamb who was slain and who is worthy. That they're not worthy of, of, of what we pour out See, just as we see these beings giving unceasing praise to God, you and I are giving unceasingly of ourselves to other things. We were created for it. We were created to worship and to glory in something. We were created to glory in God. And so we're going to glory in something. The question is, what will we glory in? All this talk when I was growing up about worship wars, right? It was all about style of music. The true worship more is in our hearts every day about what it is that we will pour ourselves out to. Will it be the one true God? Will it be the person that we see in the mirror in the morning? Will it be other things that woo us and draw and seek our affections? Martin Luther said, the thing that you've set your hope on that is surely your God. The question for us today is what about you and I? Next. We see here in the midst of this, there's this call that he says that he's redeeming for himself in verse 10 of chapter 5. He says he's made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And this is language that's used over and over in Scripture back in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, the, Peter picks it up in his epistles, talks about us as New Testament, New Covenant believers being a kingdom of priests, that we are to represent God before the watching world. That we're to be his people. That, that we have been made new in Christ Jesus. We have been remade, right, in, uh, in the image of God. We're being conformed, Romans 8, 29 uh, into the image of Christ and formed into his image. And so we are to be God's witnesses here in this world. So you and I have this calling and this task that as we await the second advent of Christ, we have the privilege to proclaim that coming. We have the privilege to say to those who are around us, you can still know the king in joy before he comes to bring judgment. There's still time. I love the way John Piper says it in his book, God is Gospel. He says that as believers, that we should be proclaiming like heralds of the king, 
like the town crier who would go out and proclaim that there is still time. And he says it this way. He says, you and I as believers should be going out with a proclamation that sounds like this. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all rebels, insurgents, descendants, and protesters against the king. Hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this. All inhabitants of the king's realm, Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion. Kneel in submission. Receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love. Swear featly to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject to your king. That's to be our proclamation. Lay down your weapons of rebellion. There is still time to receive amnesty from the king. Pardon has been secured and is freely offered to you who would receive it. And can I just end with this? God loves to use your weakness to display his strength. Say, ah, you don't know me, Matt. I'm not, I'm not real eloquent. Things don't come to mind quickly. I don't have great boldness. Can you be reminded that your king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was the lamb who was slain for you? And the Lord loves to use what the world sees as weak and foolish things to shame the strong and the wise of our world and to show his strength. Even the Apostle Paul said, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from my flesh. But God said, my grace is sufficient. The Lord loves, just as he sent his son, a humble baby born in a manger, to save you and I and to reign from the cross by taking our sin upon himself. He loves to use what the world sees as weakness and foolishness to show his glory and his power and his might. And he'll even use you and I in our weakness, in what the world says that's foolish. He will call children to himself and make them sons and daughters of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you use the weak things of the world to show your power and your might. Father, we're thankful that as John cried out, there's none worthy that just there in the throne room of heaven, as I said, yes, there is one who is worthy, weep no more. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he was a lamb who was slain for us. Father, we confess together, he is our Savior. And he is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and all majesty. Lord, we long for the day that he returns. And his rule and reign will be known and full. And his blessings will indeed come to flow as far as the curse is found. Father, we join with saints of old. And we say hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. As we await this glorious return, 
Give us grace that our hope would be firmly set on Christ and Christ alone. That we would refuse the things of the world that seek to seduce us. Father, that we would proclaim Christ to those around us. And that we would take heart that you'll use even our weakness to call the dead to life by the power of your spirit. And if there are any here this morning who don't know you as Savior, we pray that this morning the power of the Holy Spirit would convict and convince and that even today would be the day of salvation for some. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.